0: A better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
1: Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is February the 8th, 2017, and it is a Wednesday. Wednesday is our interview day, where we have a special guest on the Survival Podcast. Today's special guest is Mike Creebel. And Mike is kind of an expert in the world of wild edibles. He's got a new book out called The Scout's Guide to Wild Edibles. Learn how to forage, prepare, and eat 40 wild foods. I dig this book, man. I'm sitting here holding a copy of it right now. It is very well done, and I'll tell you what I like best about it. Um, I have made a real effort to purge from my life printed books, um, and yet this is a printed book. So why do I like that? Because it's small, it's compact, it is a guide book, it is the kind of book you can have around, doesn't take up too much space. I have gotten to the point where 99% of the time if I'm investing in a new book, I'm buying the Kindle edition or some electronic format just to save space and cut down on waste and things like that, but... This book works. This is something you throw in a backpack when you're out foraging, and it is fantastic. I think you're going to really enjoy hearing from Mike. We'll have him on just a bit. Before we do that, let's go ahead and uh, hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, guys, what do you call a gun without ammo? Well, I call it an overpriced club or perhaps a way to get a loan at a pawn shop. So I keep a good supply of ammo around, and I always shop bulkammo.com when I need more. With shipping that's so fast you'll wonder how they do it, all the common calibers and a discount for MSV members on top of it, check out BulkAmmo.com today and give them a shot at your business. Hey business owners, would you like the ability to reach more than 100,000 TSP community members for as little as $5 a year? If so, consider advertising your business in the TSP Business Directory. A listing in our directory shows your support of the community and a commitment to value for value exchange with other members. To find something or to be found, just check out the directory at tspbiz.com. That's T-S-P-B-I-Z to learn more. And our TSP Business Directory supporter of the day is Liberty Fox Defense. They provide concealed carry classes in Utah and offer custom pistol holsters for sale on their site. Go to libertyfoxdefense.com to learn more. And you can find them, of course, in the TSP Business Directory. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1948. And I've got a couple for you from Alex Shrug, who does these for us. I have standing between statehood and annihilation. Uh, I also have a wall between church and state. Notable births. Here we go. All these folks are alive, at least last time Alex checked. Al and Tipper Gore are born this year. VP of the United States and second lady, now divorced. Howard Dean, presidential candidate best known for, you know what it is. And we're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington D.C. to take back the White House. Yeah! Charles Prince of Wales is born this year, the heir apparent to the throne of England. Dennis Prager radio talk show host and author, one of Alex Shrug's heroes by the way. Terry Bradshaw, pro football Hall of Fame quarterback and analyst on NFL, on Fox NFL Sunday. I Terry Fraschhaus, one of my heroes. What a Coincidence, our heroes were born the same year. Uh, And entertainment and music. Ted Nugent, Cat Stevens, Ozzy Osbourne, Olivia Newton-John are all born this year. I get that Cat Stevens and Ozzy are that old. I never really thought of Olivia Newton-John and Ted Nugent as being uh, this old. Not that it's really that old. I'm getting old myself. But just, ah. When I look at the other people there. Avery Brooks is born this year. Uh, Captain Cisco from Deep Space Nine. Samuel L Jackson Jurassic Park Kingman the Secret Service voice talent of the children's audiobook Go the, to Sleep if you've never heard that audiobook go listen to it uh Gerald Diopardo French actor who left France after 75% tax combined with other taxes became effectively a 100% tax and this year in film The Red Shoes a young ballerina joins a ballet company called The Red Shoes The Treasure of Sierra Madre starring Humphrey Bogart Key Largo, starring Humphrey Bogart, and Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. This year in music, we have the 12th Street Rag, Nature Boy by Nat King Cole, The Greatest Thing is to Love and to Be Loved in Return, and the Woody Woodpecker Song. Yep, the Woody Woodpecker Song comes out this year, 1948. In other news... Zombies beware. The Halligan bar is here. Hugh Halligan prototypes a pry bar for New York firefighters, and it works on zombies too. Bonus. The 200-inch Hale telescope is complete. It will remain the largest in the world for 28 years. The Hells Angels are founded. The motorcycle gang is named after the P-40 Mustang squadron in World War II. The Flying Tigers were a similar P-40 squadron. So of the two, this is a tough one. But let's take a look at Standing Between Statehood and Annihilation. Quote, you win, you bald-headed son of a bitch, end quote. President Harry S. Truman arguing with his friend, Eddie Jacobson, February 1948. Births are messy things. 1% of the Jewish soldiers will be dead before this is over. One day it will be considered a fair trade, for now untrained men step off the boat, grab a rifle, and march to face one of the fiercest types of Darwinian selection, war. For centuries, Jews have been forbidden firearms. These skills and many more will have to be learned while under fire. But they have already undergone the most rigorous of Darwinian selections under the Nazis. The best of us did not return, as Dr. Frankel said. By best, he means kindest. Those selfless souls who gave away their last crust of bread are dead now. What's left will do whatever it takes to survive, because they already have. Most Jews are under military discipline, but there are smaller independent groups that are terrorists, plain and simple. They are shooting Englishmen on sight, so the British forces are pulling out. Now it's Jew against Arab. It's probably better this way, however it turns however, however it turns out. But we are from the future. We know how it turns out and how it will continue. My take by Alex Shrugged. Okay, what about the Arabs? What's their gripe? They have been getting hosed by the British, the French, the Italians for a good long time. Now the Russians want some action, so the Arab, from the Arabs' perspective, set aside any religious disagreements or anti-Semitism, the Jews look like they're just one more group of Westerners trying to take land from the Arabs. Sure, they could make room, but why should they? Now insert any religious disagreements and outright anti-Semitism, and you can see why the Arabs have their backs up. The USA has been trying to balance the principles of liberty with support for, for their World War II allies, but they are all colonists. And if the USA supported the Arab independence, what what should they do with the Jews? Forcing the Jew out of the biblical homeland at the point of a bayonet looks bad in God-fearing America. Uh, There were no good answers, so people picked the least bad ones and moved forward. FYI, Alex shrugged is Jewish and supports the state of Israel, while acknowledging the many injustices it followed in its wake of its creation. Okay, that's full disclosure by somebody providing information, which you don't always get in the modern day, do we? Alex is one of the best guys I know, honestly. Um, I think it's mostly important for us to look back at this and understand why and how it happened. And there was an interesting um, thing said to me about Masada Yub, about how a juror should judge a person who used lethal force. And would would any sane, rational man choose this action with the information they had available at the time. I, I think that has a lot to say about the way things went here. And when we look through the lens of history, we have to look with the knowledge of the people that made the decisions had to judge those actions based on intent, maybe not outcome, but intent, uh, if we are to do it justice, my take by Jack Spearco want to remind you guys once again about the Member Support Brigade, MSB. That's the main way that you can help support the show and the work that we do here at the Survival Podcast. When I put that program together almost eight years ago now, I wanted to always make sure that members got a return of their investment. I wanted to make sure that whatever they paid me they got back more than that because I think that's just the smart way to do business. So I'd like to remind you about just two of the benefits you get as an MSB member today that give you basically a hundred percent return on your investment from day one. First you get a uh, free lifetime discount membership to Safe Castle Royal. Vikrantala sells that every day for forty nine bucks. Western Botanicals gives you their premium membership discount for one year for free that would cost you 50 bucks. That's a $99 return on just two discount membership programs that I get you as a supporting member of the MSB. So consider joining today to learn about all the other great benefits. Drop by thesurvivalpodcast.com, click on Members, and to see all the ways you can sign up, scroll to the bottom of the page. And with that, let's get into the main topic of today's show. And I want to say, uh, hey, Mike, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks, Jack.
2: It's an honor to be on.
1: So I've got you on to talk about your new book, which I think is fantastic. It's called The Scout's Guide to Wild Edibles. Learn how to forage, prepare, and eat 40 different wild foods. So we're going to dig into that pretty deep today. Before we do though, can you kind of tell people how you got into doing what you're doing? Like, go back to like being in high school and study hall, spacing out, and, and, and how you end up in, in the world that you're in today from there.
2: It began with, uh, A dad that cared uh, about the outdoors and we often went out uh, to see what we could find. Uh, We had contests with relatives to see who could pick up the most hickory nuts. Um, We uh, hunted for morel mushrooms and I think that's where my love of the outdoors was born thanks to a parent who who cared. Um, From there um, I began to be Truly interested in, in wild foods uh, just out of curiosity, and when uh, Ewell Gibbons' uh, landmark book, *Stalking the Wild Asparagus*, came out in 1962, I had to own it. And my copy <laughs> needs to be uh, taped; it's falling apart. Uh, I loved his uh, scientific um, investigations and to uh, how to process acorns and the techniques that he used were, uh, in the recipes that he described were encouraging. Uh, they made me want to learn more. Uh, from there I got into uh, sharing wild foods with other people. I became a teacher and we conducted uh, scientific research uh, to learn how to experiment uh, with seventh grade life science students. Uh, one of the things that we took on was Uh, Sumac um, and how to turn sumac into uh, really good lemonade and how to do it consistently so that it looked good and tasted good. That believe it or not took 20 years for us to find the answers because there are so many variables. But the kids uh, just were delighted to to get a taste test. They didn't mind if it was really incredibly sour or super sour or barely sour um, or had little caterpillars in it or whatever. Uh, We learned how to get around all those things and and perfect it. So that was rewarding. Um, For 50 years now, I've done wild food presentations and led tens of thousands of of people outdoors uh, to find wild edibles and um, mushrooms. I've become a member of a mushroom group in Iowa. I'm from the Midwest and am um, probably one of the Midwest's best-known uh, wild food educators. I'm a member of the National Wild Foods Association Hall of Fame and um, have done a lot of keynoting and a lot of talks. But I really enjoy getting outdoors and showing people things that they can nibble on and uh, have a good time with.
1: Very cool, Matt. So the book, again, is called The Scout's Guide to Wild Edibles. Um, so you've, you've followed one of my main rules of marketing, find a niche and go at it. But um, I, I would think it would still be of interest to more than Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts and their representative leaders, right?
2: A hundred percent, and that is that is correct. I've worked with Boy Scouts ever since I was a Cub Scout, and that's um, plus 60 years now. But, uh, you know, my students and um, in public education – Love this, um, as, and we did an elective on that. Had a lot of fun with it. Uh, but this this book is meant, um, you know, for a lot of uh, people: uh, youth group leaders, teachers, parents, grandparents, as well as the uh, whether they're kids or adults. I think people can learn from it, uh, regardless of whether they've been at this foraging hobby for a long time. I share wisdom uh, from. People that I've met and are good friends with, um, Sam Thayer, uh, Wild Man Steve Brill, Meriwether um, Lewis, um, who ha- has a foraging site in, uh, based in Texas, and that is uh, just delightful. It's called Foraging Texas. And um, I know that you're from there, and uh, would highly recommend uh, the website. It's very simple. It's www. Dot foragingtexas.com and on that uh, down on the left column um, Meriwether has um, edible wild plants uh, starting with acorns and going all the way down um, as I scroll all the way down to yucca and uh, he also has on the other side the dates that he's doing programs. Uh, I see one coming up for instance in um Okay, February 25th for the Texas Survival School near Dallas, and it will be uh, from 8 a.m. to noon. And you can click on that and get more information on it. So this is a a great website in that regard, and there are other websites out there that I can share with you a little bit later on in the program. I did want to mention um, that I've been wanting to write a book on foraging. and was contacted by a publisher, Paul Kelly from St. Lynn's Press out in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. They are well known for their gardening books and um, books on insects and mushrooms and so forth. They wanted to diversify, and they asked me if I would be willing to write uh, a book on foraging, and I nearly jumped out of my seat when I heard. And so the the publisher and I talked about things that are missing uh, from the foraging literature, and it's become quite extensive. It's just become a very hot topic. Um, on Facebook, for instance, there must be 25 or 30 different groups uh, that range upwards or downwards from, say, 50,000 people in a group uh, down to maybe 15 or 20. But um, it's a hot topic. It's a great survival thing. Uh, and... Um, Connected with um, the Scouts, um, as I am, one of the merit badges that we offer in Boy Scouts is uh, Wilderness Survival. And yet, the last requirement in Wilderness Survival just blows me away. It says, basically, tell why when you're trying to survive, you should never eat wild edibles. And I thought, oh my gosh, (laughs) that needs to be changed. Yeah. so... One of the things this year that I'm uh, looking at is the possibility of um, writing a book, a merit badge pamphlet on foraging and uh, seeing if we can do that or else maybe we can change that last requirement in wilderness survival and uh, see what we can come up with. It's an
1: administrative thing, I think, with with, uh, Boy Scouts of America that there's almost a defensive mechanism in place at a bureaucratic level for things like that where there's certain things that they're afraid, you know, if somebody gets hurt or, or poisoned or whatever they're going to be liable for it and i i was a scout as a kid and it, i i can tell you that's a new thing and i'm sure you know that as well that i mean part of what i did as a boy scout was learn how to do just this type of thing um so i'd love to see that change made i, I, I that'd be great as far as i'm concerned um your book focuses on 33 edible plants and seven mushrooms. Uh, some people might look at that and go, well, there's more stuff
2: than that. Why did you stick to kind of that
1: 40-point that list?
2: Exactly. There is a lot more out there. but um, and One of the things that was missing uh, from the literature was a true field guide, one that was small enough to stick in a pocket, uh, a backpack, a day pack, uh, Carrying a glove compartment of a car, make it readily be uh, accessible. And so I chose to limit the number of edible wild plants I focused on. I searched especially for ones that uh, could be found throughout most of our country. Uh, not all of our country, but, but most of our country. And I uh, actually agree with Ewell Gibbons' philosophy uh, in his that famous 1962 book, uh, Stalking the Wild Asparagus, he said, there are many wild plants reported in the literature to be edible that I don't like at all. <laughs> and I found, I found that to be true. Um, however, uh, it's also a matter of finding ones that um, at the right time of the year, timing is everything, uh, there's a, a plant that I put in there for instance that's absolutely delicious but it only has a week of availability and that's a Siberian Elm. The seeds on the Siberian Elm are like little wafers and they have a, um, oh, a Samara around the outside of them which is kind of like a little wing that helps them fly through the air when uh, the wind blows and when that is still green. And in clusters on the tree, you can strip off handfuls, toss them in your mouth as a nibble. they are absolutely delicious, but in the Midwest, that occurs um, only around tax time and mm. only for about one week mm. they they may be you know coming up in your area because they typically come out before the leaves um be deck all, all the trees. Although you may have leaves year round down there, I'm
1: not. Uh, where I am, it's it's if it's deciduous, it drops its leaves. We have a lot of evergreen okay. plants, but if it's deciduous, we have leaf drop. We have some trees right now beginning to bud out, and it's actually a lot of my fruit trees, and I'm concerned because we're we're not done with winter yet. We may be, but oh, we may not yeah. be. So we get sometimes we get these these mild winters. We get early bud out, and then we get a late. Frost will hit us, but I know what you're saying. Like, because uh, a plant that I grow a lot on my property here uh, has a similar edible that people don't think of it. It's uh, black locust, and oh, yeah. the, the flowers I taste love like
2: those blossoms.
1: Yeah, yeah, but you get like seven, eight days, and they're gone. You know, and, and maybe two weeks if you get some staggered uh, leaf out. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I, I get what you're saying. So that that's a cool thing too. I think the other thing I noticed when I looked at yours, there is some stuff in here that maybe there's some things that sort of look like it that aren't it but you do a real good job of defining it everything in your book from what i looked at if you actually pay attention to the guide you're not going to eat the wrong thing and hurt yourself
2: right right i um, tried to find photos that i could include that really captured the essence of the plant uh, so that they were distinctive i remember kind of getting myself in trouble one time, and it was a good thing it wasn't that particular plant, but I happened to see mullen, which is a very common um, weed in pastures, and the mullen has um, fuzzy leaves that can be up to a foot long, and kind of reminds a person a little bit of tobacco in terms of its uh, appearance, and it has a a spike kind of um, uh, flowering uh, stalk with uh, yellow flowers on it. And when I saw that in a rosette, a basal rosette, I thought it was skunk cabbage. Hmm. And so I uh, experimenting as a young kid, I bit into it thinking, okay, this is going to taste like cabbage. Oh, it didn't. <laughs> and <laughs> it's a good thing it wasn't skunk cabbage because skunk cabbage uh, would have caused a you know, world of hurt with its um, needle-sharp crystals of calcium oxalate in it and the burning sensation. So, um, you know, it's better not to experiment like that. It's better to uh, go with a foraging guide or take a look on Facebook or Google images or something of that sort so you get an idea in your mind of what you're really looking for.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It makes me think of... uh I had a conversation one time with Paul Stamets the the mushroom yes. guru right and I showed him this picture of some little brown mushrooms that were growing around my property I said I didn't know what they were and I wanted to know if they what they were and are they edible he said well I know what they are but to you they're LBMs and you don't eat them and I said what's an LBM mm-hmm. he said little brown mushrooms and I said if you, if you <laughs> just just stay away if you don't know exactly what you're looking at you know stick to the other things that are easier to identify Uh, and he actually told me the ones I had found. He said, you could eat those, but they're not going to, they're not going to be very good. And there's a lot of things that look just like them that can make you sick or possibly kill you. So if we Mm -hmm. stick to things that are easy to identify, even if they have mimics, if they have those key identifying characteristics, then we can be sure that we're doing things safely, which is, you know, back to the earlier thing about Boy Scouts and liability concerns. That's what we should be teaching young people to do, to be safe and yet to take advantage of nature's bounty.
2: Excellent point. That that I agree with a hundred percent on mushrooms. I um, I think there's a lot of unreasoning uh, fear out there. Um, you need um, in identifying a mushroom and being absolutely sure of what you've got. You need to look at the characteristics of the mushroom in several reference books and. If there are, for instance, uh, 12 characteristics stated and you your mushroom matches 11 of them, but it doesn't match the 12th one, let's say that it has um, brown spores instead of white spores, sorry, you've got a different mushroom. Mm-hmm. Forget about it. Go on and look for more mushrooms or do what most of us do uh, with one that we know is edible and like a morel and then fix those characteristics in your mind and go out hunting for it. So that's, that's one, of the character, one of the things that I emphasize in the book. I only have seven mushrooms in here, but they are widely found. They are easy to distinguish, and the characteristics are spelled out. And I've got a really good photo that's a very characteristic photo of that particular mushroom. But again, every characteristic must match. If it doesn't, relax. Don't think it's the end of the world. Forget about that mushroom. Yeah. And, and go on to something different, you know. Don't waste your time.
1: I think one of the reasons mushrooms scare people so much is because they can be so deadly, and because unlike a lot of toxic, most toxic plants, I'm not saying mm-hmm. go around and taste stuff, but most toxic plants don't taste good. Where there's 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 toxic mushrooms that taste like a, well, taste like a mushroom, so it's, I guess, easier to make a mistake. Um, but one of the things people may ask about your book is that You know, you really are based in the Midwest. You're very well known in the Midwest. That's kind of where you're coming from. So, you know, are these plants Midwestern plants? Are they found throughout the United States? What's the availability of the average person that picks up this book to go out and find some, all, most of these plants?
2: It um, again, um, it it really depends on where you are in the U.S. um, to a certain extent, but. I chose the 33 uh, wild edible plants and the uh, seven mushrooms because they were so widely distributed across the country, not because they were found in the Midwest. Um, I am reasonably knowledgeable about southeastern foods and northeastern foods, um, and I've also done some foraging in Oregon. Um, But I have relied on um, other people um, and references uh, where I can look up where the plants are distributed to to be sure of of those things. Um, I own (laughs) probably 220 of um, some regional uh, plant guides and foraging guides. Um, And the one that um, my friend Mark Vandenberger uh, came out with um, the idiot's guide to foraging sounds kind of funny but it is one of the best books ever written uh, and that um, you know starts in Texas but it can it's also meant to kind of cover North America uh, there are plants in it that I'd never seen before and that was one of the reasons why I'm interested in it um, Sam Thayer is a good friend of mine and he lives in Wisconsin but he's traveled the United States and um, I have served um, a number of times uh, as uh, uh, oh sorry this is a problem of age don't worry Um, about it I've uh, I've served several times as a um, technical editor on books and I've I've been a technical editor uh, for Mark's book The Idiot's Idiot's Guide to Foraging uh, technical editor for Sam Thayer's books um, the Forager's Harvest, and Nature's Garden, and a number of other uh, books that people would recognize by some rather uh, well-known authors. Um, Timber Press uh, has a series of uh, books on foraging that cover the United States now. And one of the things that I do uh, in the back of my book is that I, m- I mention uh, the regional guide. So if a person does live in the southwest, there, um, there's a book that needs to be written yet on it, but uh, Mark's book, The Idiot's Guide to Foraging, would be my first recommendation. Um, there's a book on uh, foraging, the southeast foraging, northeast foraging, uh, the mountain states foraging, um, and uh, Pacific Northwest foraging. Um, one of my friends that you may uh, know of is Christopher Nyurgish Uh, from California and he has written a book that covers the United States um, on uh, foraging with a Falcon Press and he also has some very good ones uh, for um, California foraging so then there are of course a lot of YouTube videos out there and a person can uh, look at those the the person that has done the most YouTube videos of all is um, Green Dean, uh, also known as Dean Jordan. And he has a wonderful website, www.eattheweeds.com. And one of the nice things that he has done on there is that he has posted uh, foraging instructors. Um, so if you go to um, eattheweeds.com foraging slash foraging instructors, You can find people from all over the country listed by state, um, Alabama, Alaska, Arizona, um, Arizona, and so forth, all the way down through um, Wyoming. And you can find the person that uh, is listed as a foreign engineering instructor and and get in touch with them by email or by phone or by their address and arrange to... uh, go out on, uh, and learn about wild foods with them. That's one of the reasons why I was uh, so up on foragingtexas.com is because uh, the upcoming classes are listed there. And then a person could arrange to go out with a knowledgeable person. And when you've got a knowledgeable person that can point out the wild food in the field, um, you might have misconceptions on its size. Uh, and on the timing of the harvest, and you get it corrected right then and there,
1: yeah, the knowledge passes so, quickly when you 've got experienced people like that one you mentioned is a shame i won 't be i would I would actually set some up and encourage people in the area to come out and, and hang out uh, for that one, but i 'm going to be out uh, foraging pork on that particular day,
2: uh, <laughs> <laughs> which
1: is also fun to forage uh with uh, with with, uh, with a firearm at, at times. Oh, we've
2: got a lot of it around now, don't we? Yeah,
1: especially here. Um, Yeah, I mean, the people you're mentioning are all people I'm aware of, and they all do some great work. I I love Green Dean because of the identification uh, methodology that he teaches, which makes makes me very, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: very, very safe item. Uh, And uh, your book's fantastic. Um, Can you uh, talk a little bit more about your book, though? This is like when – I, when I was given your guest form and told you were sending a book, I figured, okay, well, this will be like any field guide that I've ever seen. It will be small and compact, which is cool. I even mentioned that in kind of the, the, the lead-up to the show that – I've pared down most of my print books, but this is the kind of thing that goes in a backpack, and it fits, and it's small, and, and, and I really like that. But I expected basically what I've normally seen in a guide – Here's the plant. Here's what it looks like. Here's the edible parts. Here's how to make sure you don't eat the wrong thing. Here's the time and the way to harvest it. Go- goodbye. Good luck. But yours really goes deeper. It's like it's divided into parts. It's like a guide and then projects mm-hmm. and activities and then recipes. Can you kind of talk about how you were able to do that, especially into something that is so compact? Because you know that sounds like a book that you could beat somebody to death with, and it really is a, a backpack book.
2: It is, and the nice thing about it, I think, if uh, if I, if I if someone else had written it and I found it, I would say, oh my gosh, this is, <laughs> but you know, I don't want to talk about my own book uh, in that regard, in that same Let way. Let me
1: just say, with but that, I... you're a terrible author, right? You have to
2: talk about your book. <laughs> <laughs> you're not a terrible All author, right. you're a terrible All promoting right. author, well,
1: right? You've got to promote your book, man. That's why you're on the air today.
2: Oh, thanks, Jack. (laughs) Okay, well, um, for instance, I put techniques in there that are really useful. Um, Cracking and shelling hickory nuts, for instance. Uh, A person can use a nut pick and wind up with the little tiny pieces, little tiny crumbs of hickory nuts and a lot of uh, sharp uh, nutshell shards. But I go into some detail here on how to get almost whole halves out and how to avoid those shards. And uh, the technique is... Makes use of a little um, set of pliers uh, that are like four and a half inches long, diagonal pliers that you can nibble away the shell once you've cracked the shell. And there's a technique on how to uh, crack the shell. Um, how to make fabulous fruit leather from autumn olives or choke cherries. How to process acorns. And uh, I. It's not my own uh, technique for processing acorns, but one that I found that is definitely worth sharing. It's, uh, it works, and it's very quick, and you can, you can make something uh, reasonably quickly. You don't have to wait for days. You don't have to boil the heck out of the acorns. In fact, it's kind of a cold process. Um, how to process black walnuts. A lot of people just don't understand that black walnuts are fairly simple, but you've got to know what you're doing so you don't wind up with your hands brown for a whole month and uh, embarrassed when you go to hold out your hand for change at a store. Yeah, that's
1: so for that's for seasoning your leg hold traps. That's not for your hands.
2: <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah, yeah, good point. Um, so I've incorporated a lot of knowledge. Um, and one of the things that I found at one of these wild food workshops, the one that's been going on the longest, this year will be its 50th year, is the one out in um, uh, West Virginia, and it's called Nature Wonder Wild Foods Weekend. And that particular one, a woman came a couple of years ago, and she took the brown heads of cattail. And I always thought, you can't eat those. She has turned it into uh, mock pulled pork uh, b- barbecue what? recipe yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. The brown part. Yeah, the brown part, and which is just as hard as can be, you know, uh, until it gets really fluffy. And uh, so I've experimented with it all, pretty much all seasons long uh, in, into the winter and um, found that the best time to harvest it, and I, I know of a person that loves uh, – Real pork barbecue, uh, you know, would say impossible. <laughs> but um, the best way to harvest it is when it's dark brown um, in in the fall, and you um, take it inside a house if you're going to if you're not out camping or whatever, and you put it in a shopping bag, a plastic shopping bag, and then you put your hand inside and very carefully. Um, rotate your hand over the, over the uh, seed head so that the fluff comes off and doesn't fly all the way around the house. Um, then you can uh, add some ingredients to it. I've got the recipe in there. And you can bake it in the oven and then you can take it out and pull it apart and it begins to look like pork, uh, barbecued pork that you're um, pulling apart. And then of course you have to slather on a lot of barbecue sauce.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: But the flavor, the flavor comes through, and if you do it right, it um, it will be so much like barbecue pork. It's just incredible. It's it's not quite the same, of course, but it's close and it's astonishingly close. It's fun to serve on little crackers, you know, as a little hors d'oeuvre, and let people walk by and, and see what they think of it. Um, I found out that if you waited until it started fluffing apart and the seeds started cascading away, that uh, if you went and used all that, uh, it would wind up so doggone fibrous that you'd have to spit out a lot of fibers afterwards. <laughs> but it's fun. It's, it's um, a great hobby. It's where you can boldly go, where you've never gone before. It has survival value. And of course, when you're out, um, most of us know about black wild black raspberries and blueberries and things of that sort. And, um, you know, it's, it's just really fun to have a free meal for nature. Absolutely. Um, definitely agree there.
1: Um, can you give us some examples of your recipes? We just learned how to make pulled pork from a, a cattail. Well, that's, that's someone else's thing. You have some pretty cool stuff in your book.
2: Yeah, um, I've made a a quick bread that uh, has won a national wild food uh, award. It's called Babwa quick bread. It contains uh, bananas, acorns, black walnut, and apple. And I've used wild apples. And in place of bananas, I've made use of um, pawpaws. (laughs) And it's very good. Um, Pawpaw ice cream is one of my favorites, and I say I didn't include it in there, but I also have... Burdock kinpira, which is a Japanese side dish, it's made from the root of burdock, and uh, got cattail mock pulled pork barbecue, which we just mentioned, cinnamon black walnut ice cream, dandelion donuts, and a lot of people would just pick the head of the dandelion and dredge it in let's say pancake batter and fry it up. Well, those are fritters, and they the green part that's underneath that yellow head is terribly bitter. Yeah. And I've had a few people that reacted to it instantly and vomited. So um, <laughs> We've learned since then that you can squeeze the yellow part of the dandelion away from the green part uh, with a little practice. You can pinch them between thumb and forefinger and kind of shear them off and collect them pretty quickly. And then um, I've made this for thousands of kids. Uh, and I should say they've made it for me because the seventh graders love to do their own cooking and um, the dandelion donuts were a big hit. Many of the kids that have eaten them you know, now are now parents and uh, wanted the recipes, so I thought I'd better put the recipe in there. Double good blueberry pie, um, that's a commercial one. It wasn't one of my recipes, but you um, have um, raw blueberries in a pie shell, and then you pour a cooked matrix of blueberries over top of them and let it set. And oh, my, that is really wonderful to have that uh, raw taste um, mixed in with the cooked taste. Garden wheat quiche is one of mine. And you take things like purslane and lamb's quarters and chickweed, um, sheep sorrel, and those uh, flavor uh, your egg dish. Um, by the way, I don't have any ducks. How are duck eggs?
1: Duck eggs are fantastic. There's one problem with ducks when it, some of the stuff uh-huh. you're talking about. When I moved to this property, it is a rough property. And a lot of the, the weeds you're talking about, people call them weeds, are very restorative plants like yes. lambs' quarters and purslane and all. Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out ducks like them. So, I when I moved yeah. in here as I was trying to get my own stuff to grow, I was foraging off my own little 3 acre property, lamb's quarters and and uh, plantain and stuff like that and it was great. And and now there's a lot less of it because especially when that stuff comes up, young man, boy, those the, I'm watching a goose right now, he's tearing up some plantain. Uh-huh. Uh they just <laughs> love that stuff. But yeah, duck eggs, like the lamb's quarter
2: and duck egg omelet yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, that's, yeah. It it's, sounds good. I noticed that on your website, and I hope people will definitely uh, take a look because, you know, it's intriguing. There's a lot that a uh, person can learn from, from what you're doing, and I uh, appreciate your sharing those things with us. Um, back to the the list of things and the recipes, microwave purslane pickles. That's something that's very, very simple and quick to do. Uh, Five or seven minutes um, after you've picked your purslane and uh, pulled the leaves off, you can chop up the stems uh, so they would fit in a canning jar. And you can make the purslane pickles right in the microwave. And they are like a bread and butter flavor with a a recipe that I I put in there, a bread and butter pickle. Maple marmalade, which is absolutely wonderful. Mulberry taffy. Um, Mulberries probably another few weeks, and you should be having mulberries down there. I would imagine. Yeah, they're budding Um, out right now. mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Puff puff puffball pieces. Mm. Puffball is a quite a common mushroom um, here, and when you get over to the west coast, and there's another giant puffball out there, but it's the same. And the fact that it's, it's large and round and edible, and uh, it's kind of hard to mistake it for anything else. Uh, but, um, again, the book does describe how to, how to do that. The puffball pieces, you basically uh, uh, peel the mushroom after cutting it in half to make sure there aren't any uh, bad spots in it and, um, and that it smells good and it doesn't have those little white wiggly things we call maggots although they might be extra protein. And um, then you can dip it in onion ring batter and deep fry it, and they're delicious, especially if you you add a little bit of ranch dressing or barbecue sauce to it. Um, Shagbark snickerdoodles are um, uh, basically hickory nuts in a snickerdoodle uh, cookie, and they make it 100 times better, in my opinion. Um, I have a recipe in there on how to make your own syrup from shagbark hickory bark and the bark um gives the syrup the flavor of um hickory smoked bacon for instance and it's it's uh, incredible and very simple and easy to make the shagbark syrup um the sumac lemonade uh, got two different ways of making it that um, we researched after twenty years worth of work and um it's, it's good, and it's consistently good. Wild food trail bites, um, those you can add a number of different kinds of things to, including weed seeds, and they are excellent um, energy uh, pick-me-up kind of thing when you're uh, doing a long hike. And then uh, <laughs> wild grape popsicles at home. I chuckled a little bit because one of the photos I have in here um, are two of my 7th graders, former 7th graders, I should say, that um, were eating wild grape popsicles, and I t- told them that it turned their tongue purple, and so they stuck out their tongues at each other. And I caught them in the act, and it's it's kind of a cute uh, photo in <laughs> the book. But that, yeah, it, it's it's um, those are the recipes um, and uh, some information on it um, as far as plants. I you know I could list some if you'd like uh, of the plants that are covered. Sure okay well starting with the a's and going down um, stop me when you want uh, amaranth a very common weed that's found all over the place it's very the the plants leaves are good the seeds are, are good um, asparagus um, and if it's asparagus you know, it it looks just like the asparagus in the store in fact there's no difference um, wild asparagus has actually escaped asparagus. Uh, the birds have uh, gotten the seeds and pooped them <laughs> along the fence or um, under some utility wires or whatever, uh, not too far from where asparagus was growing in somebody's garden or being commercially raised. Automolith, um, it's a terribly invasive plant uh, that I help plant some years ago because that was what the DNR was saying was really a good thing to do you know and it made uh, great travel lanes for wildlife and it was wonderful food for migrating birds I should have thought about that twice good food for migrating birds ah. <laughs> yeah they love the seed and um, and pooped, uh, and the autumn olives have come up everywhere um, where you know around the areas where it's been it's one of our fastest spreading um, nuisance plants. But the, uh, the the droops on it, um, which are basically berry-like and they have a single seed with kind of a hard shell on it, um, the droops can be wonderfully sour um, and tart if they are fully ripe and kind of swollen. And so I go into some details on that. Uh, other plants include and I'll go rather quickly through these, black raspberry, black walnut, blueberry and huckleberry, burdock, cattail, chokecherry, dandelion, Japanese knotweed, lamb's quarters, mayapple, milkweed, uh, mulberry, oak, which means the acorns, of course, Uh, oxeye daisy, pawpaws, persimmons, plantain, pokeweed, purslane, serviceberry, Shagbark hickory, Sheep sorrel, Siberian elm, silver maple, silver maple seeds. Um, you know, a lot of people uh, have thought, are these edible? And uh, found out that they are indeed if you roast them. And they're better than potato chips, actually. Hmm. Um, stinging nettle. Uh, nettle should be up and around in your part of the world now. Um, sumac, sunroot, which is another name for Jer- Jerusalem artichoke. Um, wild grape, wild plum yellow wood sorrel and um, the wild mushrooms include chanterelles, giant puffball, hen of the woods morels, oyster mushrooms, uh, scotch bonnet um, which is a fairy ring mushroom but not every mushroom that grows in a fairy ring is edible so you uh, you have to be able to separate them and I, I do that pretty well I think so for shelf uh, and that completes the wild edibles um, and and mushrooms that are in the book.
1: Very cool, man. Could you give us a little bit about your experience in teaching survival skills?
2: Yes, I've done that um, for Boy Scouts. Uh, we've had a week long um, uh, survival school um, uh, for uh, um, middle school students as well at the uh, University of Michigan. I uh, when I was in Michigan, I Worked um, as a school teacher and had a connection uh, that allowed me to um, do this program at the University of Michigan's Botanical Gardens, and we did that for a couple of years anyway, but it was uh, well attended by 5th graders, 6th graders, 7th graders, 8th graders, and they just had a blast. And one of the things we did at the end of the week was to serve the parents. We put on a feast for the parents, and they loved it, and they brought... uh, brothers and sisters as well too so we had, I didn't realize it was going to be quite a, quite so much work but we had a great time with it, we really did um, the uh, other things that I've done regarding survival uh, is that we've I, had, I taught an elective when I was a teacher um, in Michigan and it was uh, on edible wild plants and we went into um, a farm that was seven or eight miles away um, on a bike hike, and we lived off what we could find, uh, so to speak. <laughs> it was it was just a day-long trip, but we had a lot of fun. We um, were able to catch some fish and frogs. We uh, were able to get grasshoppers, and grasshoppers, by the way, are not to be eaten raw because they contain um, parasitic worms, and um, they need to be cooked. But I have pictures of the kids... Uh, sitting together and watching each other as one person would tentatively bite into one of the the fried grasshoppers. So we've we've had fun. I've uh, put on survival instruction for Boy Scout leaders. Um, we had I think 120 at one time. It was way too many, and I learned that yeah. it's much better to have small groups. You know when you're doing survival instruction. Um, I've been on a, a wilderness campouts with uh, scouts and uh, with people from um, uh, that are friends, and uh, also I did one once for the University of Michigan. I um, was able to uh, share my survival knowledge and uh, and uh, edible wild plant skills um, with uh, the, uh, maybe. I think we had 15 on that um, 15-day trip, and that was a lot of fun.
1: Very cool, man. So I got a question for you here kind of at the end. Foraging is great. Um, Mm -hmm. I've said if you put me into the Louisiana swamps and leave me there for a couple months, you come back, I'll gain weight. (laughs) <laughs> um, I'll get fat in a swamp. I'll get fat in a jungle. I did a lot of my Army time in, in, in Panama and Honduras, and, and I'm pretty familiar with jungle ecos Wow. Uh, Excellent. I grew up, though, actually, even though I live in Texas now, in, in rural Pennsylvania, was a hunter, fisherman, you name it, got out all the time. Winter's uh-huh. a different story, especially when you live in the northern climates or midwestern climates. About the only thing I remember routinely being able to come up with that wasn't a meat based thing in winter um especially with snow on the ground and maybe nuts that started to rot and stuff was uh, wintergreen tea berry and i was a big uh-huh. grouse hunter and man you'd spend hours chasing this little bitty bird you know the dog's tired <laughs> you're tired and you might be walking through this this little little bit of a glade in the, in the in the woods and you look down and there's two or three of these little red berries man that was like a that was a treat you know uh <laughs> but there wasn't a lot so what would you tell people that were looking to forage in the winter
2: time Uh, That's a toughie. Um, Native Americans made use of buds uh, on trees. Basswood tastes like raw green beans, for instance. Um, You can also eat the inner bark on trees, and one of my favorites is yellow birch,
0: Mm.
2: which has got a fairly wide distribution in the United States, uh, and it has a wintergreen kind of flavor. Um, A friend of mine uh, is Lita Meredith, and um, Lita has written a book called The Forager's Feast, and in it she has a recipe for birch, um, um, yellow birch bark shortbread. And we were at the um, North Carolina Wild Foods Weekend in April last year, and she brought me some that she had baked. And I, the, the flavor of the wintergreen came through very nicely, very, very nicely. Um, black birch, uh, which has more of a limited distribution, is even stronger taste, uh, to it um, more of a pronounced winter green flavor but yeah it's a toughie in the winter time um, if a person asked me do you want to be dropped out here and and see how well you can survive I would say a not without equipment okay <laughs> because it's tougher um, yeah. you know um, you could do it but making the shelter consumes a lot of time I would say not without some sort of um, uh Pot that I can melt snow in if it's a snow area, or that I can boil water in, um, not without um, some sort of uh, energy ration to keep me going and something to make fire with. You know, you really, you you really need those basic needs met if you're going to be comfortable and if you're going to survive, um, even. I think a person that is knowledgeable about wild foods is going to have a tough time in the winter, depending on the landscape, as you say, uh, Louisiana. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh,
1: Start Florida. turning
2: under over rocks and you'll find something, right? I mean. <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah. Or breaking open uh, logs if yep. you can, um, you know. And I have eaten grubs before. I've cooked grubs. Um, they're not my favorite, but I'll tell you, um, they. We'll keep you going. Um, One time we were uh, with the scout troop, and we were trying to um, help control Dutch elm disease. And so the parks in Ames, Iowa, um, had uh, a number of trees that had been cut down, and we were asked to go in there and, with our little hatchets, our hand axes, and peel the bark on the tree, which was loosened by the activity of the beetles underneath. And as soon as we peeled the bark back, we'd see a lot of these little grubs. Some uh, were the ones from the elm bark beetle, but most of them were flat-headed borers, which are much larger, and they've got kind of a triangular-shaped head. You could hold on to the head and then bite the rest away. And it was a creamy taste and high in fats and oils, the sort of thing that you know bears fatten up on before they go into hibernation. And doggone if we didn't have... Um, 50 or 60 chickadees before we were done. That were thinking dinner. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and we're happy for us to move out of the way. One of our boys, um, as a matter of fact, one of our boy scouts said, "Mr. Crable, do you have a, a film container so I could take some of these home?" And I said, "Sure." And uh, I gave him one of my film containers, and he put 25 or 30 of these flat-headed borers in it. And I saw him at Scouts the next week, and I said, well, what did you do with all those? He said, well, I'm kind of ashamed to admit it was so much fun. He said, when I was at dinner and sitting across from my little sister, I pulled one out, let it wiggle, and ate it in front of her, and she screamed. And my parents got kind of mad. <laughs> but he also said that he had gone... Um, uh, and taking take the frim container to school. And on the way home from school, he had five or six of his friends with him, and he bet him um, a, a quarter each that he could eat some bugs and um, swallow them. And he showed them the bugs, and they all forked over some money, and he ate some. <laughs> and it just stunned them. <laughs> But I've had a, a wonderful experience with wild foods. I really have. You know, you were right. At one time it was uh, not considered dangerous, and it was the sort of thing that was in the Boy Scout handbook. Mm-hmm. There used to be a first-class requirement that you find four edible plants and prepare and eat one of them. And now it, it's, it's gone from the handbook. There are no a couple of pages. Uh, it used to used to have wild foods on it. It used to be in the Scout Field Book, and yeah, there's an army of uh, lawyers that work for the Boy Scouts of America now. But doggone it, they do dangerous things in the Boy Scouts of America. Uh, for instance, one of the things that they do that's dangerous is knife and axe. Okay, um, that could cause liability issues. Another is that they have climbing towers and rappelling towers, um, zip lines. Just this past uh, um, month, I had some Boy Scouts in my troop that went down to um, a camp, and they cut a hole in the ice, and they had a polar bear plunge. (laughs) Well, there was a liability release form that parents had to sign warning this activity could lead to death. (laughs) But, you know, the Boy Scouts always teach the kids the right way to do things and they always have safety features built in and I think that this book that I've written approaches that you know it, it talks about how to do things safely and so'm I'm, I'm fairly confident that we can and I'm hoping that we're going to be able to get maybe a foraging merit badge permission um, so I can go ahead and write up uh, the requirements and and submit this, and we'll get it back in the Boy Scouts of America uh, as long as the proper precautions are followed.
1: Yeah, I absolutely agree. And, you know, the the whole, you know, something's dangerous makes me kind of think of, you know, Dwight Eisenhower, he said something to the effect, if you want total safety and security, go to prison. Right. You know, then, then you're fed, you're clothed, you're kept warm, you're sheltered that, you know, life is dangerous. Living is dangerous. Yeah. We all have this, ter- we all have a terminal disease. It's called life. It ends in death. Right. And that's the way it is. And that doesn't mean we go off half cocked or willy nilly and do things in a, in a dangerous way or don't take reasonable precautions, but it, it's not just, it, it, I'll tell you what it is. It's, it's not just Boy Scouts. It's, it's more troubling for those of us Older folks that look back and see that it's it's infiltrated Boy Scouts, but it's really everywhere. I, I call it bubble wrapping our children, right? Like they, they they're Ooh. not allowed to skin a knee or go play in the dirt. It's dirty in the dirt. Yeah, that I mean. God. I'm sure you came home covered in dirt, and the only thing you were told to do was to take a bath, right? And and that was like (laughs) how American children, I'm not going to say boys, how American children grew up. And not that long ago, I'm a product of the 70s and the 80s. And uh I remember coming home from high school, grabbing a twenty two and heading out the door and having a neighbor wave me over to shoot a groundhog. And, and today they'd be calling the ATF or something or the FBI or, or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And it's it's good to see work being done like your book because if you want to get a kid into this stuff, show them how to make a, a donut out of uh, dandelions. And I you bet go. you they'll get interested, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You, I know you're part of like a group on Facebook. Can you talk about that, like how people can learn more? I know I don't think you have an individual website, uh, so. Well,
2: uh, the, yeah, the simple way: if you're a member of Facebook, if, if you're not, join. You know, it's simple. Um, once you get on Facebook, then there's a little search bar at the top, and you can type in wild edibles or edible wild plants, or whatever, um, or mushrooms, and boom, a whole list of things will pop up, and you can click on one, take a look at the kinds of comments that are happening and whether or not this is part of what you want to do. Um, I've been active with um, one, especially, because it's Midwest, and it's called the Midwest Wild Edibles and Foragers Society. A friend of mine started that six years ago, and now it's around 6,000 people. And people will show us a photo that they can upload, and they'll ask a question, what in the world is this? Um, one person, for instance, thought he had coral berry, and it turns out, no, it's not coral berry, it's buck brush. Mm. Um, and it's not edible, uh, but it's not poisonous either. You know, it's one that we would probably term in- inedible. And he was thinking and try to make jelly out of it like you could from American (laughs) Beautyberry and you know people that aren't experienced have an opportunity to find out from people that know And um, I also um, am active on this in that I um, will post news of upcoming conferences where you can go or weekends where you can go Uh, for instance um, one that I'm going to um, in North Carolina uh, that's coming up in April is April twenty um, first, twenty second, and twenty third, and you can find out about that by typing in North Carolina Wild Food Weekend, and uh, or NC Wild Food Weekend, and they have a, there's a Facebook page, and a person has her email Daisy Meg Wells, for instance, is is her her moniker, and you um, send her an email and she will send you a registration form and a brochure that tells what kind of events they have. And they're fabulous events. Um, Just this past year, we had um, a person from Big Pig Outdoors, um, a survival um, and search and rescue um, instructor in the Smoky Mountains, and he was fabulous. Um, So these are ways that you can learn um, by communicating with uh, the people who know. And it's it's uh, fun to share recipes and uh, photos of the things that you've made. So that's, that's a recommendation that I would have. Um, if you're going to uh, get into a group on mushrooms, you want to make sure that you've got um, good photos if you're trying to have somebody identify your mushroom. And photos of not only from the top, from where you're standing and looking down on a mushroom for instance if it's growing on the ground uh, but also that you uh, uproot one of those mushrooms and show the underside because that helps us uh, know what we've got Um, those are the kinds of advice uh, uh, things that i would give to people that are using those sites there's an edible wild plants group on uh, Facebook too, and I was, I'm just going to very quickly type that one in. And okay, that group has 51,289 members, <laughs> and uh, there's some high powered um, wild food instructors on there, and they're getting into uh, well, this this one has a picture: trout cooked in clay and wild aromatic herbs, and it just looks wonderful. Um, that's Pascal Botter, and uh, he has a book that came out not long ago, with about forty-five bucks. But um, he had all kinds of great ideas in there for um, that a person could use if they ever get into a, a situation uh, where they need that knowledge or. Whether they don't you know it 's just a lot of fun to experiment and really get into uh, loving the outdoors and caring about the outdoors cool man i 've got several of those that you mentioned pulled up and links
1: in the show notes so people can check them out directly on Facebook. Um, the Edible wild plants group that you just finished with there is a is a group that i 'm a member of and a lot of people in this community, mm-hmm. including several members of our expert council here on the show are part of it. So definitely check that one out. And I want to say, you know, Mike, this has been a great interview. I've really enjoyed talking to you today. Uh, I've also got uh, links where people can get your book on Amazon.com. Uh, in the show notes today, there's a link in the, the bullet point notes, and there's a picture of the book right in the uh, post that will go along with this episode. All you have to do is click on that picture and You'll be on Amazon, and you can get a copy of the book, and and I highly recommend it. And I'd like to thank you, Mike, not just for producing the book and spending time with us today, but it's clear that you've dedicated an awful lot of your life to teaching these skills to people and making sure that they're being taught to our young people, because if we're not doing that, all we are is a bunch of old farts remembering how it used to be, and eventually when we all pass on, there'll be nothing left. So I I thank you for your service uh, in that aspect a great deal, sir.
2: My honor, uh, and thank you so much for um, making things available on your website. I think uh, people who listen in, uh, including my friend um, Ian Crum uh, from Michigan, uh, who was one of my former students and who loves to listening to your podcast. I uh, want to thank him uh, for pointing me your direction. Um, I find your uh, your podcast fascinating, and uh, wish you much luck and uh, I'm glad we have some of this. Share some of the same uh, ethics. So, uh, thank you again, Jack. Thanks, Mike. We appreciate having you today.
1: All right, guys. Great guy. Great interview, great interview, really informative, great stuff, and I really recommend you consider picking up a copy of The Scout's Guide to Wild Edibles. You can do that by clicking the link in the show notes today and uh, getting on over there. Just show notes, you'll see a picture of the book, click that book, you'll get on over to Amazon, and you know that's a great segue into the fact that if you want to support this show, if you're going to pick up a copy of The Scout's Guide to Wild Edibles, do it through my website, Uh, Go through tspaz.com or click the link on anywhere on the Survival Podcast for that book. And when you go to Amazon, you can shop and buy that book and we'll get credit for the sale. And, you know, Mike will still get credit for selling the book as though I didn't sell it. It doesn't matter. It, It works out for everybody. It's win, win, win. And, of course, once you've clicked a link like t so you go to t spazcom and click a link to go to Amazon, it doesn't matter what you buy. You can buy dog diapers like some guy keeps buying. Like every month I see an order come through. I don't know who he is, but he buys dog diapers. So I guess he's got a dog that has a bladder control problem. But I get credit for that. It doesn't matter what it is as long as you go through t first. So it's a really painless way to support the Survival Podcast. Uh, today, though, for our item of the day review that we always do at T-SPAS, or we do most days at T-SPAS, I should say, uh, we're continuing our project in 2017 to help folks out there that don't have one yet put together a good, comprehensive, basic gunsmith and maintenance kit. So today we have a product from a company called Real Avid. It's the Smart Gun Bench Block. So what's a bench block? Well, I'm kind of finishing up the theme we've been on with punch tools and hammers and stuff like that. A bench block is primarily for punching pins out of your weapons and their frames. And it's a little block, and it sits on the ground, and it's 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 got some, some padding and condition. in this case a rubber coating, so that when you put uh, the frame of, let's say, an AR there and drive a pin out of it to do something, uh, you don't mar up the surface, and it also has a little hole for that pin to fall into, so you can drive the pin through instead of trying to like prop it up against something. They're just really, really handy little tools. There are some purpose-built ones, and if you were building ARs every day, I would say get an AR purpose-built uh, punch block, bench block. But uh, but most of what you would do as a hobbyist can be done with a simple universal block like the one I've posted today. Here's what I like about the one from Real Abbott. Number one, it's magnetic. You get that, right? You knock the pin out. The pin sticks to the side of the thing. It doesn't fall under the table. You don't hear tap, 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 click. And then you lift up the non-magnetic one, and you thought it was flat, and then it rolls, and you hear ding, 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 dang. And then you hear the, 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 the hobbyist gunsmith go, where the did it go? Right? And then you're on the floor with a flashlight, and that little pin has disappeared. And if you don't have one of the same size, you can't put your Browning A5 back... It's a pain in the ass, right? And everybody that's ever done any work with tiny things has dropped one and been sure it has to be right there, but it ain't there. The other thing I like about it is it's very affordable. It's 15 bucks. Some of these things sell as much for $30. In the end, it's a block with some holes in it that you knock pins out of your gun with. It shouldn't be that expensive. A lot of guys that have woodworking skills, they build their own bench blocks, and you could certainly do that out of wood uh, with a drill press and maybe a router to do some other cool things. But this one... It does a lot. It's affordable, and it just works. So I really recommend that you uh, that you check this thing out today. And if you are building out your gunsmithing kit uh, with us on this project, consider adding it. But remember, it doesn't matter what you're doing. Uh, you can go and uh, do your Amazon shopping through t and support our show with no out-of-pocket cost because it's stuff you're going to buy anyway. That and the MSP is the best way to support us here and the work we do. So on to the song of the day. So I saw what today's song of the day was, and when I never heard of it, it's by a gal named Dinah Shore, and the song is called Buttons and Bows. And it's actually from a Western from this year called Pale Face. And, okay, well, whatever. So I, I, I start listening to it, and I'm like, Jack, are you sure about this idea of playing the song of the year for the episode until we get up to the modern day? Because it's really not my kind of music. It's kind of sing-songy, happy, musical, galley thing, you know? Like some song that they would work into a modern play for little kids to do in, like, fifth grade is how it sounds to me. But as I'm listening to it, I always try to temper myself with... What is the context of the time in which the song was popular? A little bit of historical perspective. And, of course, this song is in a Western. It was originally actually themed toward the Native American side, but it ended up in the movie not being seen as not going to fit that. It probably wouldn't have, and being themed toward the settler, the white settler. So I try to take that to the context of the time, 1948. Well, after the war especially, in the 1940s and 50s, that had already been started by the Great Depression and the move to the cities, more and more rural people were moving to the cities and to the towns and to the suburbs. In fact, the suburbs are on the the, the biggest boom from the 1940s to 1950s that they ever experienced on a per capita basis, ever. That's why the suburbs are laid out the way they are. The suburbs are laid out to be like a little mini farmhouse so the people could have their, their gardens and stuff in the backyard. That's why if you buy a house that was built in 1945, 1955, 1960, it probably is a little bit bigger of a yard and a little bit smaller of a house than we're accustomed to today because they were trying to give people that, sell them that dream. I would think when you listen to the words of this song, there were a lot of especially rural women who were making this decision to move themselves and their families that found some comfort in this concept of maybe life doesn't have to be so physically hard. Maybe the cactuses don't have to hurt your toes. Maybe you can dress up in buttons and bows instead of buckskins, right? And, and with that being somewhat symbolic and and, and brought forward, so the, the, the song was written for this movie that was about you know the 1870s, 1880s. There was a corollary going on with this mass migration in America today. And while I'm not in love with the song itself, that makes listening to it a little bit more palatable for me. And who knows? Some of you may love this song. I don't know. America loved it so much, in 1948, it was the number one song of the year. Here you go. Diana Shore Shore with Buttons and bows. It was actually remade several times and covered and also charted as a remake. So there's something to it. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
0: East is east and west is west and the wrong one I have chose. Let's go where I'll keep on wearing those frills and flowers and buttons and bows, rings and things and buttons and bows. Don't bury me in this prairie, take me where the cement grows Let's move down to some big town where they love a gal by the cut of her clothes And I'll stand out in buttons and bows i love you in buckskin and skirts that I've homespun But I'll love you longer, stronger where your friends don't tote a gun My bones denounce, the buckboard pounce and the cactus hurts my toes Let us moose where gals keep a using those silks and satins and linens that shows And I'm all yours in buttons and bows <laughs> ¶¶ my bones denounce The buckboard bounce And the cactus hurts my toes Let's be swear where gals Keep using those silks and satins And linens that shows And I'm all yours in buttons and bows Silks and satins and linens that shows And I'm all yours in buttons and bows Student trim and wear women are women in high silk hose and peek clothes and French perfume that rocks the room and I'm all yours in buttons and bows buttons and bows buttons and bows Girls and flowers and buttons and bows, and springs and things and buttons and bows